Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast for choral conductors, composers, and choristers, where we interview members of our choral community to talk about new music, new and upcoming performances, and discuss the interpersonal and social dynamics of choral organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. Beyond. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Today we chat with composer and longtime friend of IOC, Mari Isabel Valverde, about her recent and upcoming choral works, the importance of quality translations, how her work is inspired by everything from nature to social change, and the importance of representation in choral music, especially for intersectional musicians and composers. All right, well, joining us today on In Unison, we have award-winning composer and singer Mari Isabel Valverde. And Mari has been commissioned by the American Choral Directors Association, by Texas Music Educators Association, the Seattle Men's and Women's Choruses, the Boston on Choral Ensemble, and many others, and has even appeared with the Dallas Chamber Choir, Vox Humana, and Exigence out of Detroit. Mari was a feature composer at the 2016 Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses Festival, where her uh, piece Our Phoenix was premiered by six collective ensembles from the United States and Canada. Her works are published by Earth Songs and Walton Music, but she also does some self-publishing as well. Mari is fluent in Spanish and French and is actively studying Brazilian, Portuguese, and Swedish. In fact, she has translated numerous vocal works and documents, including a phonetic guide of Ravel's opera, uh, L'Enfant et les Sortilèges. Based out of North Texas, Mari had taught voice at the high school level for over six years, and her former students have participated in all-state choirs and state solo competitions. She's currently teaching singing and transgender voice training with True Voice Lessons. Mari holds degrees from St. Olaf College, the European American Musical Alliance in Paris, and the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. She's a member of ACDA, the American Composers Forum, and the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. Welcome to the show, Maury. So glad to have you. Thank you. Hooray! Welcome. I mean, that was quite a lengthy bio and, and incredibly remarkable, but I actually would love to start today with something a little bit um, that doesn't necessarily appear on your bio, but that is near and dear to Zane and my hearts, which is your relationship with IOCSF, our little choir here in okay. San Francisco. Can you maybe tell the folks who are listening a little bit about your, your past with IOC? Sure. I, um, I, I think I said this right before I left San Francisco, but it, I still mean this, like being in IOC, aside from like, getting my hormone therapy squared away and aside from like getting my name legally changed just to like match my life so I could get my career moving. Like IOC was the thing that was most worthwhile in my two years in San Francisco. And I miss y'all so much. And I, y'all always will have a part in my heart. So I auditioned for your, your choir and I sang alto too, and I assisted some. 
and yeah, it was, it was like a, a family and I'm sure y'all have the same camaraderie and, um, you know, just that, that nurturing energy, um, in your rehearsals that, you know, I don't know. It's just a powerful thing when you get a bunch of passionate people who just want to be together and sing and like create something. Yeah. And I know y'all put a lot of care and, and thought behind each program that you put on. So I'm very proud to have been a part of that for two years. And, and I guess going in terms of being a composer. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you that the camaraderie continues because I was chatting with Fausto today, who's a member, and he said to mention that he says hello and that he misses you terribly. So the camaraderie and the love is still there and it's always there. And and as part of that, too, you know, it it sort of spurred this thought for me about, um, for many of us, watching your progress and seeing you over the years, you've become a little bit of a hero for for many of us in terms of your works and your trajectory of your career. I mean, it's really incredible. Um, But I want to turn the tables around a little bit and ask you, who are are some of the folks who are choral heroes for you? I mean, when you think of your past, people who maybe who were formative for you or... Um, people who inspire you, like who are some of your choral heroes? Um, that's a complicated question. Just because I feel like as I've grown up, my opinions of people have kind of shifted in one direction or another. <laughs> but um, I mean, the easy answer to that question is Dr. Armstrong, my uh, the conductor of the St. Olaf Choir. He recognized my talent and um, you you read part of my bio where I studied in Paris. That program that I studied at, um, I applied to using a recording that the St. Olaf Choir made of a piece that I composed during high school. Uh, It was in French and it was, it took me like two or three years to like compose because I was a baby and I didn't know what I was doing. And (laughs) um, if you go listen to it, it's called Après un rêve with the same text by Faure, the art song by Faure. Um, It's really, really popular melody. You can YouTube it and find uh, all kinds of editions for like solo cello and whatnot. But um, it translates to After a Dream and it's like a, a passionate, you know, sexy daydream type situation. And so I, I said it for SSAATTBB. And like I said, I didn't know what I was doing. I feel like that's not even really representative of like my choral style anymore. Um, but it was, it was a piece of music that I finished and we recorded and I mean, it's pretty epic. Like, it's a it's a very difficult piece of music, and um, yeah, he just you know turned to me uh, on the bus on tour when we were sitting towards the front of the bus, and he um, asked me what I was working on on my computer, and I was engraving music, and he wanted to see some of my scores, and. Um, you know, at that time, uh, you know, a personal note is, you know, I j- had just, 
began my transition. And um, yeah, I ha- so that that came off of a near death experience. And so there's a lot of there's a lot to unfold there. But the point is, Dr. Armstrong, um, I got to share my music with him. And um, while I was a student at St. Olaf College, he recorded we we the St. Olaf Choir recorded two of my pieces. Wow. Um, the other one was the Cloth of Heaven, which eventually became my first like formally published, traditionally published piece of music hmm. with our songs. That's tremendous. I imagine that's not something he would do for every student. He must have seen something in you. Oh, well, he did it for some other students, too. That's just tremendous kindness. I imagine you must, as (laughs) as an educator yourself now, probably see yourself putting that same energy. I'm going to try not to be shady, but he noticed me. I was not, I don't think I was his favorite by any means, (laughs) but, um, He's been very good to me. And actually, I think I'm doing a podcast with him later this month. It's, yeah, so I still have a relationship with him. And he's shown up for me time and time again. And I cannot tell you, like, that without that relationship, I don't know that I would be where I am today. So he's the, the most obvious answer to that question. Of course, when I moved to San Francisco, I worked with David Conti and uh, David's a good friend. You know, I, I, I learned a lot from him and I just, um, you know, he's there when I need him. So I, I also appreciate David. Um, I, I, I get the impression that David has always kind of been looking out for the LGBTQ composers. Um, not saying that everybody that he's taught has been a member of the community, but he certainly, um, he certainly cares. And he's, he sees that and uh, recognizes that and um, values that. So um, yeah, those are, I mean, those are maybe two predictable choices, but I've known, I know David from when I was in high school because we did his music in one of the Allstate choirs I was in. Oh, wow. He actually yeah. signed my score because I told him, I said, hey, David, I want to be a composer someday. <laughs> you know? so. we, we love David as well. He's been instrumental in helping us get our podcast up and running as well. Was, was our, our first official guest, I think. Yeah, he, was, he so. was our first official guest, yeah. He's such an important person in our community. He really is. He really, really is. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Um, IOC has actually been working on um, a recording of an upcoming project of a piece of yours, I Flow, I Am, which is from Bohemian poet Reen, uh, uh, Rilke's Sonnets to Orpheus, number 29. Um, is, that, is, actually, actually, is that fair to say that he is Bohemian? He's Austria-Hungarian. So I don't know what is that. 
period of time, like that place or space. I'm borders are sure. borders are silly, you know. Anyway, but well, technical Bohemia was a place, as now it's just part of the Czech Republic. But there was a place called Bohemia, and I, I know because that's where my family is from. I'm oh. a real Bohemian. Oh, <laughs> you better check yourself. <laughs> Come on, Giacomo. <laughs> well, we I, exa- exactly. I better. I ought to be careful. Um, but that piece, there's um, there's a little bit um, about. I'll give the audience a little piece for those who don't know it. But I flow. I am from from your from your notes um, is a setting of Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy's translation of Rilke's 29th and ultimate sonnet to Orpheus. It's a spiritual commentary on the courage it takes to be present in darkness, breathing, speaking, living, and loving through pain and uncertainty. As Macy suggests, we may only survive in this planet by flowing with the turbulence of the earth, taking refuge in its beautiful chaos. specifically about this piece for those who don't know who are listening mari is a bit of a polyglot herself would you use the term i feel like i i would M- knows multiple <laughs> you're well you're proficient in quite a few languages as, as zane mentioned you're french spanish brazilian portuguese course ipa um and lately in addition to being called upon for your extraordinary composition skills you're also more and more offering translations of untranslated texts as well before we jump into that piece specifically where did your fascination with language come from? Like, what was it that drove you to want to think about um, learning multiple languages? Um, well, I'm Mexican-American, and I wanted to take French in high school. And um, my parents said no, that I had to take Spanish. Um, and then when I was in high school, I think I think my my language study kind of coincides with my music study because I certainly got introduced to singing in different languages. When I was in high school, I had started studying German lieder and French melodie. Just continued studying choral music, and you know, I just I I was always fascinated by not just the musical aspect, but like the poetry. I just wanted to understand and, and do it right. And whenever I went to college, I started listening to. Brazilian folk and pop music. And I just like loved it so much. And I I could understand some of it because I had studied Spanish, um, but I wanted to be able to understand, like sing it, sing along. So I taught myself uh, using books and podcasts and I uh, also participated in a little like student group that we built to to do Portuguese, and um, 
Yeah, it's there when I need it. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, you know, getting it right as a, as a singer and wanting to understand that. How important is, I mean, this is sort of silly, but for those of us who are a bit naive in the translation arts, how important is it to getting it right? I mean, are there examples that you can think of off the top of your head where you're like, oh my God, let me tell you this bit that's constantly mistranslated or... What do you lose when you don't get, when you get a translation that's a little off? Oh, that's a good question. I think about um, A Boy and a Girl by Eric Whitaker, mm. because I feel like it, it doesn't uh, hover, it, you know, it doesn't try to soothe or um, mm. I'm trying, it sounds very abstract, but it's an abstract topic. Like the way the words sound and the meaning of what they're saying um, is so much more sensual mm. and unapologetic. And I feel like the translation from Spanish to English that he set is very Anglican. It's very apologetic. Mm. And it's it, there's a lot of dairy. It's too much dairy in the music. Dairy! As in it's cheesy. No, no, no. It's just or like... As in- it's just like soft around the edges the whole time. Mm. And like, when I think Octavio Paz, I think like, you know, like um, cactus and like thunderstorms and, and, you know, long strips of land where it's just sand and, you know, creatures under the ground and like flores and, you know, sex and all of that, you know? And I just, I don't, I just feel like it's a little whitewashed, you know? Mm. It's like, it's like the Neruda, I forget who set the, maybe it's the Lauritsen piece of, of the Neruda, but he talks about la suavidad de sus manos. And it's like, it's not quite the softness. It's not, it's, there's, there's, I, I, I think I feel what you're saying, which is like, there are words like that, like suavidad, which are, which are not just, physical thing but an emotional yeah so like when you say suave i think it's cool yeah and suavidad is almost has a a healing connotation yeah and when you say uh what was it smooth softness or or smoothness yeah soft doesn't necessarily have that content so there are limitations with the translations and it's interesting because we're talking about i flow i am which was originally in german yes and you know i'm pretty confident (laughs) in some other languages but I can pronounce German. I'll sing in German, but don't ask me to translate it. And we're also talking about, um, well, another one with the Oracle Spring. It was also originally in German. It's Goethe. Goethe, yep. So mm. uh, that's why I guess I just did them in English. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe some German scholar somewhere is throwing shade at my um, settings of English versions <laughs> of German text. Which is fine. What do, you, what do you look for then when you look for a translator or translations? I mean, how do you know when you feel like you've got it right? Or Usually it's because I've encountered the poem in English. I, I wasn't even aware that it was German first. Um, which was the case in, in both circumstances. And, uh, but I think it's important to note um, Anita Burroughs and, and Joanna Macy, because those are their words. Mm. 
it's their interpretation of Rilke and their lens. And, you know, I, I gave on the inside cover, I, I give a little bit of a background on, you know, who these women have been for their lives. And I think that's an important consideration um, because those poems could be translated probably in a number of different ways. And when I've translated things, it's, it's sometimes really hard to like, at some point you just kind of have to settle to where it's like, you're never gonna get quite the flavor, quite the texture of the original language. Talking a little bit more about um, I Flow, I Am, which, um, by the way, it's very interesting for me being a part of IOC. We, were, we began rehearsing this piece actually in person um, and then moved it to a, a, a virtual choir uh, project once we realized we sort of couldn't get, get back together. Um, and it's interesting because I, I remember standing with, with Fausto at rehearsal because we stand next to each other in the back row. And we just, I mean, the text alone and your setting of the text just shook us. I mean, it really, when you, when you read the text of this piece of I Flow, I Am, um, and Fausto has, is lucky because he actually can read German, so he gets the extra flavor and the extra text of it. Um, it just was so incredibly moving. And it was interesting to be part of both of these worlds, like to rehearse it in person with others, with people physically around you, almost reverberating with each other, very much like the text. And then trying to do it as a virtual choir set it. Does it does it surprise you at all that we're that we're using it as a virtual choir setting? I mean, what are your thoughts about also the timeliness of this piece? And it just feels like it's talk about a time to be singing about it. I mean, um, I really think about the work of the English translators um, and how focused they've been on like environmental justice type things. Um, I mean, that's at least the impression I got the more <laughs> I read into who they are and, um, you know, the wisdom that they've gotten from their years. Um, they're not young, <laughs> but um, that's really what I think about. Um, I also think about, uh, I don't know if there are many fans in, uh, in uh, IOCSF of Avatar, the last Airbender yeah. series. But if you've seen it, it's like, I don't know, four or five episodes from the end of the series um, where there's a, a character named Guru Patik and he goes to, to meet him to learn how to get in the Avatar state. And there's all these really little, they're like a vignette little he's got to individually unlock every single chakra. And um, yeah, that scene is my favorite scene from the whole series. It's really good. Y'all should go watch it if you haven't. But um, that's, that's kind of how I that was kind of what it made me think of whenever I read this text, because uh, there's a message saying that you kind of, at the end of the day, have no choice, but to be one with nature in order to weather the storm. And I think that that is such a, a profound, uh, like, an, like a metaphor mm. for all the kinds of bullshit that we have to go through in life. 
you know? And I think that that can mean a lot of different things. But the poetry lends particular images, like water, you know? And yeah, that's basically, it's like, it's like they tell you in your martial arts, you have to be like water, you know, in order to flow and be able to keep on fighting, you know, sometimes. And it's it's like really, you're, a lot of your pieces actually do have this beautiful sort of natural theme or this inspiration that comes from nature, in addition to like, your incredible works that you're doing now on social justice and all these pieces too. And I look at some of your pieces that we've done with IOC between um, this piece and um, Oracle of Spring as well has that same uh, appreciation for the, the beauty of nature. And um, in that same weird duality, uh, it's interesting because IOC's new album just came out and it features your piece, Oracle of Spring, which we're really excited about. And it's sort of a little bit weird to be in our <laughs> second COVID spring. Like, it's just odd to think about the fact that we have all these songs and these musics that exhort spring, and yet are we fully able to enjoy them? How do you feel about those pieces now? I mean, do you, when you think about them in the context of what's going on, could you imagine them being programmed now? Could you relate to those same feelings? Uh, definitely. Um, it definitely benefits me if people are performing my music. For sure. But I just, you know, you know, it's like when people ask me about what mm. um, style my compositions are, and I have a lot of trouble with that. Uh, I, I've started to realize some things that I keep on doing and that I like to do. Um, and I won't tell you what that is because I don't want you to like be like, aha, you did it again, you know? Um, <laughs> but I, to me, each piece is its own universe. And yeah, they're just, you know, honestly, you're, I'm handing you like, you know, a score of music and you're, reading it and making it into air and it's like uh, you're casting spells or summoning creatures right it, that's basically I'm over here doing recipes for y'all that's kind of how I see it <laughs> depends what kind of monster you want to summon um, one of your most performed pieces is When Thunder Comes, which uh, is the text that comes from When Thunder Comes, poem for civil rights leaders by J. Patrick Lewis Tell us a little bit about how that piece came to be performed so frequently. Like, what do you think it was that suddenly made people sit up and take a look at this piece? Well, it's a, it's a big piece. Like, it is. It's not like. It's not like Sing Me to Heaven, you know what I mean? Like, you can do that with a small group, you can do it with a large group, you can do that, you know, in a church, you can do it in a school, you can, you know. This piece is, um, the piano part isn't very easy. I don't think it is. I'm not really a pianist, so. Um, and it takes some vocal skills and there's a percussion part. So, 
I mean, it's a piece that probably requires a lot of rehearsal. Um, I think that people perform it so much just because it's very timely. Mm. Um, and specifically the text, which, you know, I can't take any credit for, it is, uh, you know, pointing to certain civil rights happenings um, that is a part of American history that often gets overlooked or um, maybe has gotten forgotten. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's uh, the, the, the karma of where we are uh, in our journey as a, a country uh, and our journey as a democracy, you know, like the karma right now is very similar to like 1960s, like, or French Revolution. If you're, if you're into the astrology, you know, you, you can find people talking about, oh, the stars are like this again, right? Um, which, you know, whatever. I just, I just think that there's, it's very obvious to me that there are certain, uh, how do you say, loose ends. And so it's really important that um, all of us know our history in order to be able to mend those loose ends and, um, you know, make informed decisions about how to run this country um, and, you know, what we're going to put up with and what we're not going to put up with. Um, yeah, it can be taken a lot of different ways, but the, the specific civil rights heroes talk about segregation in schools in, in California. Um, at that time, it was like Mexican versus white people. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, of course, um, Harvey Milk, which mm. everybody in San Francisco knows Harvey Milk. Of course. But, you know, to ignore like gay or trans American history is basically going to ensure that we're going to uh, have problems, you know, because we're going to repeat certain problems because of things that weren't fixed back then. Um, and then there's the, the, the racial um, Mississippi uh, getting people to register to vote and people acting in solidarity, going to Mississippi to register black voters and uh, encountering violence along the way and being arrested. And, um, you know, that's still a thing now, you know, people have a hard time just even registering to vote. And I feel like there was another one. It was Helen Zia, um, Mm -hmm. who is a, there's several things. She's, I believe she's a journalist, but she's been like an anti-war advocate, uh, very visible mm. lesbian, um, Shanghainese American. And, um, you know, just like an advocate through, through and through. And um, I don't think that people necessarily know who she is. And um, it's just understanding. I feel like, it's a very California piece um, when you when you like analyze it deeply. But to me, um, it's 
to me, it's like, that's when I think of what being American is, that's what I think of, you know, it's not a margin for me to, to think that American identity is black or gay or, you know, anti-war. Those things are not political. Those things are what it means to be an American fighting for democracy. I would, I would love to step sideways into something you had just said earlier, which is that um, it sparked a thought for me. Um, you, in 2016, premiered a new piece called Our Phoenix by a cluster, or your piece was premiered by a cluster of six U.S. and Canadian choirs in 2016 at the, the Gay and Lesbian Association of Choirs in, in Denver, um, who have, for those who don't know, we have, there's a gala conference every four years, and, and choirs from uh, the U.S., predominantly the U.S. and Canada, and uh, recently some, some, some folks from around the world, like the Beijing Queer Chorus, also joined in, in 2016, um, which was pretty amazing. Um, all got together, sang the text by uh, the brilliant Amir Rabia. And what I wanted to ask was, it's very interesting when we go to gala, when we have these conversations, it's, it's sometimes a conversation some folks have, especially folks who come from bigger cities like L.A. or San Francisco or New York. You know, there's a little bit of this mood that's like, uh, you know, why are we going to gala? And, you know, are we really going? Like, why are we going? And I wanted to toss that question to you, which is, why is gala so important now? What, what do you say to the folks who, who wonder about the importance of gala, even within our own community? Well, I will say, I think the organization is a dynamic. Like, there's obviously, it's not just gay men's choruses, you know? I think maybe the impression is that it started that way. And um, even now, like, the gay men's choruses, to my knowledge, are mostly white. And so there's, there's even a, you know, a, a criticism from, you know, people of color that they feel like they're not as welcome. Um, and that's prevalent. So at the same time, there's people working for change. I'm not just here to like criticize. I'm just saying that like, it's dynamic. And there's, there's a lot of people in their organization. What unites them, and I didn't really even know about Gala until I was um, commissioned in 2015 to do this piece, Our Phoenix. Um, and it was performed at their festival that happens every four years. It didn't happen last year because of COVID. But uh, didn't know who they were, but they defined themselves as being part of the LGBTQ choral movement. And that just sounds like right up my alley, you know? Um, so I, a lot of those members, the organizations that are part of gala courses, such as the Seattle men's and women's courses and um, many others. Um, the, the one who commissioned When Thunder Comes is the um, One Voice Mixed Course in the Twin Cities, which is one of the biggest, um, highest member SATB uh, gala courses. And their director, Jane Ramsire Miller, is also the artistic director of gala courses. And I mean, just like Anton Armstrong, she's opened so many doors for me and um, come to me time and time again to write me music. I've actually sung for her, um, participated in festivals and workshops and 
you know, in, includes me to an extent and and specifically like transgender voice advocacy and and all of those things. So I I mean I work closely with gala courses of course and I don't know. I I'm kind of an outsider, but at the same time I definitely see them as my colleagues. Yep. Yeah, I can't uh, I I um I'm a bit biased as well because the GGMC was a founding member way back in whatever it was 2000 I mean 1980 something I think when when Gala Choruses was formed or um shortly after the GGMC was formed, but yeah, I mean we we adore gala it's a it's an anchor part of what we do every four years and um i i I think that there's work that's still left to be done there for sure um and it's great to have colleagues and folks who are willing to have the conversations and who who open those conversations up and those spaces up which i think is pretty important and pretty spectacular i will add um our phoenix is uh comes from a text by a queer, trans, mixed-race, disabled poet um, who I've collaborated now with four times, four or five oh, times. Amir, yeah, they're incredible. Yes. Their works are just beautiful. Yes, and um, I mean, I, I owe them a lot in terms of what I've managed to create since 2015. Um, yeah, and, and myself, like... I identify as a trans Mexican American woman who happens to compose for choirs. And um, I don't know, I, I think that what that means when you talk about identity, which maybe because you live in California, you're tired of talking about, which I understand, is just that there's certain. Um, this is the other thing about like choir and like singing that is so important is just that like it helps people to understand truth. And uh, whenever you have a piece of my music that it's come from me and it's come from my lens and my perspective, there's, there's certain things, there's certain truths that are central to who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish. And then there are other things that um, I certainly, um, I'm, I'm fighting against, you know? I'm fighting for and I'm fighting against. And I don't know, I just feel like each, each piece of music that I'm bringing is like a, a puzzle piece to fill in the whole truth mm. so that we can understand each other more deeply because with the music it's like the glue like when we're singing together we're connected and we we understand each other um but bringing the ingredients to that situation is really it's a really important job and there are just certain things that as a mexican-american trans woman i'm not there's certain truths that i'm not willing to ignore um, when I create my art. Yeah. What, I, one of those pieces you mentioned uh, just now being a Mexican-American composer, Mexican-American trans uh, female composer. One of the pieces which you are working on right now, which is un, 
published, but I think it probably hits the nail right on the head, is a piece uh, that you've written called Borderlines that uh, came out in 2017. piece um, as I understand it is it is about the idea of boundaries and borders I think the text actually speaks a lot about um, mirroring mirroring or, or, or juxtaposing the lines on a map against the lines in, a, in the human hand and on the veins of a body and it, mm-hmm. it's very beautiful it's very corporeal as a lot of your music is sensual as, as many of your uh, pieces are um, which which I love but what made you choose this particular text? to set. I don't, was it in English originally? I'm not sure actually, but can you tell us a little bit yes, about that it's originally, It's originally in English. And um, like a lot of my commissions, the text was not selected by me. It was selected by my collaborator. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> my brother uh, is a university voice professor at Adam State University, which is in like South Central Colorado. Um, it's a Hispanic serving institution and their music program is, it's pretty small. Um, and they did a concert series over several years, um, called ethos. It's, um, basically music that strives to honor immigrant experiences. And so she, um, found this poem titled maps, um, by Yesenia Montilla which is a new piece of poetry. Uh, and um, she wanted to know if we could use this text. And, you know, I got permission. And um, the thing that I asked her was, uh, can we use guitar? And she mm-hmm. said, yes. So um, this is really the only piece of choral music I've written that has guitar, but it's such an important part to build the, the universe around the song. Um, but yeah, it's quite sad. It's about separation and isolation. And, um, I mean, if you hear from the beginning, it's essay. Mm -hmm. And then once essay is done singing, it's TB. And only for the repeated chorus section, do they overlap. And in that section, it's, um, I wish maps would be without borders. Uh, and that we belong to no one and to everyone at once. And it's really beautiful, but it is very sad. Um, there's a lot of river and water references. And um, yeah, and there's another spot where it's uh, 
if everyone you came from had disappeared. Mm. That's a that's a line that's uh, that stands out to me, and I said it as a solo. And uh, after that, you get the soprano line only, and then the alto line only, tenor line only, and the bass line only. And then again, they come together. But it's like, uh, I would weep with you. I would weep with you. And it's Mm. like everybody pouring their portion of tears into the well until it finally overflows type of thing. Um, Yeah. They say that the, the personal is political, right? And vice versa. This piece strikes me as being quite timely also and, and being quite political, perhaps, and personal in its, in its nature. What's been the responses from groups and audience to, to the piece? Have you heard back from the folks who have performed it? And Well, Borderlands hasn't been performed that much. I think it's performed maybe three times. Mm. Um, and I don't recall much of a, a, a reaction. Um, yeah, I it, you know this is this was one of the things I was thinking about because usually when people are commissioning me to write new music, they are usually asking for uh, a piano part, <laughs> if not some type of instrumental um, addition. And y'all do acapella music, and so it's a situation where I I don't know that y'all would ever do my other music, but at the same time. Other people don't really know my acapella music, and I direct people <laughs> to IOC uh, y'all's recordings. And everybody's like, "Who is this choir?" <laughs> I'm like, "I used to sing with them, you know." So, yeah, it, there's y'all. Y'all feel like there's a little bubble over there, and some people know about y'all, and some people don't. But like, if y'all want it to be a nationwide sensation. We can make that happen. I mean, I'm feeling that. I, I don't know about Zane, but I'm feeling <laughs> You're a that. nationwide <laughs> sensation in my heart. <laughs> Same. And I, I have to say, uh, it, it, may not, it may have only been performed a couple of times, but uh, this audience of two who happened to listen to it today, you, it, it, it's a stunningly beautiful piece, and I hope the folks who are listening to the podcast will take the time to go over and, and listen to it as well and, and program it, because it really is incredibly timely and incredibly beautiful and personal and political and stunning. So check it out, folks. It's really spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. I wondered, um, you said this is the first choral piece you wrote with guitar. Is that right? That's, That's what you right. said? <clears throat> so is this the first time you've written anything for guitar? That's correct. So what was that, As just as like a nerdy composition question, was that something, how did you go about that? What were the steps involved? Zane also has some nerdy engraving questions he'd like to ask. I do, well. I do. You've been, you've been saving them. I can yes. see it in your eyes. I'm just holding out, I'm just holding out. Yeah, exactly. So, but I was, I was wondering, as I was reading the score and listening to the music, you know, it's beautifully scored for guitar, but I personally, you know, I've written a little bit of music here and there, but I don't know a damn thing about writing for guitar and so i wonder like what the steps you went through to get to the point where you felt comfortable to write a piece that had guitar accompaniment it's so easy so if you want to write for electronics if you want to write for taiko i've done that if you want to learn write for bass clarinet if you want all those things like if you want to go do it all you need to do is find a piece of music that has those things that you love Mm-hmm. and that you can obsess over right. and then you find the score if you can and then just like learn it 
you know, learn how, how it works and what its conventions are. And, you know, it's like a meal you or a pill. Like once you've taken it, it's part of you. And then you go write whatever piece. You just do a little bit of score study. Yeah. Uh, for me, that was the, oh, I love this. It's the, um, uh, the Falla. I see that Manuel de Falla. Um, uh, Siete Canciones Populares Españolas. Um, it's a song cycle. Mm. And you can find a bunch of renditions of this with like voice piano or um, I don't know if there's, there's probably a voice and guitar one. Uh, the piano part is probably written for guitar. I don't know which one came first, mm. um, but it's a lot of like Spanish art song has yeah, yeah. guitar like accompaniments from that era, I guess. But uh, the rendition that that I love is uh, cello and guitar, and it's just it's it's such a masterpiece. And that's what I um, kind of use as an inspiration. Beautiful. I had another question about solos. Um, mm. A couple of the pieces that we were looking at in preparation for talking to you, you know, these newer these newer works that you've written that are a little bit more driven by you know current events and politics. We've gotten a, you've you've moved from more natural, more nature based poetry into things that are more uh, current because that's what's in demand, as you mentioned. Um, and I noticed as we were looking at those scores that a lot of the solo lines are written for either soprano or tenor or alto or bass like you give the the director the option this could be a tenor solo or it could be a soprano solo this could be a bass solo or it could be an alto solo and i wondered you know most composers they write a solo and it's like this is a soprano solo and they just designate it or a treble voice solo or something to that effect i wondered you know what the motivations were for you to 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 make those designations on the score where it's like, this is a choice and these are two options. And I, I, I think I might know the answer, but I want to, I want to hear your thoughts. Well, I mean, the blunt answer was that completely true because one of the pieces that y'all performed <clears throat> called En La Noche Entraremos mm-hmm. had a soprano solo and then a tenor solo, but even then it's like soprano and tenor. Right. Um, but I mean, that was specifically for those voice parts, <clears throat> which in that case, it was more of a contrapuntal thing. Mm. It just happened that way. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the other reason is just like, you know, I think people are just too concerned about what's in other people's pants. You know, like gender is not that important as, singing the solo with your whole voice and soul. Like, I just don't really care. I mean, the only reason I would care is contrapuntal things that like, right. you know, a minor second sounds like that and a major seven sounds like this, you know? And that's the only difference you get by, you know, separating things, <clears throat> trying things in a different octave, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which sometimes that's an important decision, but a lot of times it's just kind of like, whatever, you know? I think you take that all the way to its logical end with the solo that starts United in Song. 
very beginning in the detail you say you can have one person sing it you can hand the baton between vocalists it doesn't matter the point of what you're singing is that we are all together so that i feel like that kind of follows through in your theme which is like put your heart out there you know put put as alias quick as i get i'm not much more exciting than that I beg to differ. I'm so I'm I'm a I'm a, a strict bitch in other senses. <laughs> I think you know it's something else that Giacomo and I have been talking about as we planned this podcast and we talked about topics that we wanted to talk about was the idea that for a very long time we've had men's choruses and yeah. women's choruses and like this designation of of that and and that that's starting to change right what's the group Giacomo that's now not oh yeah so I I mean I sang in college with acapella groups I sang with the Whiffen Poofs and a group that used to be known as the Duke's Men of Yale that all decided to become all gender groups um, and what's really interesting to me is like that's great I you know I, I applaud those decisions especially when it advantages folks who are you know, get to have the privilege of a group like the the Whiffenpoofs, which has a world tour as a college senior. It's really amazing. Um, but it's interesting that that idea hasn't really followed forward. Like, for example, there's a member of um, IOC who is an alto to incredible voice and is like, I would love to sing tenor sometime. And my natural inclination was like, oh, my gosh, you, everyone's welcome in GGMC. You should come join. And yet the name of the group is men's, right? Like, it's there in every gate men's choir. Like... What are your what are your thoughts about that? Um, again, I feel like it's just karma that's not been resolved. You know, <laughs> like as far as I'm concerned, this isn't a new issue. You've always had um, probably um, in the closet trans people in your choirs, always, um, and that's not uncommon. And the other thing I was thinking of is like, well, I said, I said earlier, like people are put too much emphasis on what, uh, what's in other people's pants, which is like none of your goddamn business anyway, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, there's this idea of like brotherhood and sisterhood. And I just like, I don't know, like that. I never really felt like I had sisterhood, you know, I've never sung in a women's chorus and I write all the time for SSAA or SSA all the time. That's the people who are hiring me most. Mm. Um, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, I wouldn't have it any other way, but, um, yeah, I've never had that experience. I have sung in men's choruses and, um, you know, I've always had brothers. I've always, most of my friends have been male and, you know, it is what it is. I don't really, I don't feel like that is better or worse. I think it's really up to, at the end of the day, each individual person about what that means to them and that it can be many different things to many different people, you know? Um, but I don't know. I, I think especially with, with men's ensembles, um, it, there is a, a different flavor. And, you know, when you, when you get a, mostly a group of the same gender, it's a different flavor. And 
I tell you, I have never felt more powerful than <laughs> when I got to conduct the Seattle Men's Squares. Mm. Um, because they were just like, I, I brought my vulnerability to the table with my music and myself and they brought it too. And it was just like this incredible feeling, which I'm sure you can get conducting any ensemble regardless of gender. But for me, it was, you know, it was kind of a yin and yang situation. You know, I just felt like we fed off each other and it was, it was like I said, I never felt more powerful <laughs> than conducting a majority cis male ensemble. Mm. Um, yeah, because I never thought I would do that, you know. Um, but to say to say that is also important to note that now there are both trans men and trans women in the Seattle men's chorus, and that is their name. They've kept it, and it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, ultimately it comes down to it being a label, you know, and it's a it's a conversation that we're having about labels, but the core of it is still great music and talented musicians and beautiful people when it comes down to it, I think. You know, there's this idea of safety. Like, you want to be safe in your choral space. You mm -hmm. want to build trust with your choral ensemble and they want to build trust with you and that's how you that's how you make the best music you possibly can. But I think that there is this idea that like you have to separate women from men because they're all rapists. Uh, and what that does when you say that, and, and that's what you live by. And basically you're, you're putting trauma into how you define a choral ensemble. Um, it erases men who have experienced sexual assault or sexual violence, you know, so it's just like you can't just do gender-based things because gender is just gray. Yeah, great statement. All right, I'm going to nerd out on us for a little bit about engraving because this is something Mari and I have talked about before. In my experience with your music, which I have a lot of experience with your music, you have had always had the most pristine engraving that I've ever seen. No other composer has given me a score and sometimes you give me a score and you're like well i'm not done with it yet or something you give me some excuse about oh it's not perfect yet i'm not ready to to show it to the world and i take a look at it and i'm like this is this is more well engraved than some of the published music that i've purchased in the last six months it's it's always amazing to me how great it looks so i wanted to ask you how important obviously it's important to you but overall how important is it is the way a score looks. Like when you open oh it up God. and look at the music, how important and why is it important? Well, I mean, the first thing I can think of is first impressions. Mm. Because if you have a glorious piece of music and it looks like boo-boo when you open it, like, I don't know, some people are going to pass on that, even though it's a, a glorious piece of music that's going to change your life. Um, so there's that. Um, the other part of it is like, especially composing for gala courses, these are not like all, you know, young groups. Mm -hmm. And, um, I want people to be able to read my music and not be like, I gotta get my cheaters. Right. Maybe that sounds a little ageist. I live with my parents and they have cheaters, so I can say that. <laughs> but, 
you know, it's just like, I want it to be, I want it to make sense. And um, yeah, some of the music that I've had published does not look that great. And it, I, I don't want that ever again. Do the publishers make changes? Do When you submit a score that's engraved the way you want it, do the publishers then say, well, let's take this off you and know let's what? change this? Let's, I'm going to... I'm going to have you and like 10 other conductors write beautifully written letters saying, Hey, re-engrave this please. And then maybe <laughs> they'll do it then. Cause they always tell me the publishers, it's like, it's just like this vicious square or triangle, depending like composer, publisher, vendor, consumer. Mm. And like, we're living in a time where that composer consumer situation is a lot closer and the middlemen are sometimes not necessary. Yeah. I mean, the middle people. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they always say to me, when they want to tell me no, they say, oh, this won't sell. We can't publish this. It's too esoteric. Mm. Which I love saying now, because when I was writing music for y'all, that y'all like did amazingly, like they would reject my, my stuff. And I mean, I, I, I understand that it was hard music and like, you had to like rehearse it and stuff, but um, yeah, it was just like now, like that I am a somewhat celebrated composer. Like people are like, why, why isn't your stuff so easy to get? Like, why aren't you just published? Why haven't people done your music? Like, I'm just like, you know, I don't, I don't have the help. Right. That everybody else may got else published and published and published and published. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole thing. It's like there's a lot of gatekeeping, and yeah. I have grown more and more impatient as I've gotten older. But that's why I self-published so much. Yeah, I also appreciate Which is hard how specific to do, you and are, and it's imperfect. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> I, I do. I, I love how specific you are with your markings on the score. And that's beyond like, obviously there are moments in many scores that you've written where there's, you know, a little asterisk and at the bottom of the page, it's like, this is exactly what I want you to do right here. And that, I love that. But even, <laughs> even like the difference between your breath marks, you take the time to say here is a breath and there's a clear breath mark over here is a breath, but it's in parentheses. And I, I've never actually asked you this, like what exactly you mean by that. But what I take it to mean is that the breath mark, this is a breath, the one in parentheses, it's, it's what we would call like a lift or a catch breath. It's something, it's a little shorter. It's not a big moment, but rather a little moment. So Am I right in that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm interpreting wrong the whole time. They, people can't see this, but Zane is red as a tomato at this moment. It's fantastic. <laughs> look on Mari's what face. She's I like, never... oh, you've got it all wrong, you jackass. <laughs> what if I never told you? I'll tell you. <laughs> um, so it, it's like, a, you know, it's like a cookie if you if you want it. That's what that is. Like oh. you're traveling along, you're like need the breath. The breath is there if you want it. I got if there's it. a comma there though, it's like it's a breath, 
but it's up to you at the end of the day as a conductor about what kind of rent that is. Right. So I'm not emotionally bound to, if I was emotionally bound to how long, like the duration of that breath, I would write in a rest right. of some duration. Yeah. Um, which sometimes I do, but other times it's like, no, this has to be felt and not stressed over. And I don't want to make that decision because it gives you the ability to interpret how you want. Um, that's the answer to that. And I actually feel like I need to go back to my older scores and make sure that I have those written in because I only started doing that around 2015. Ah. I think. Mari, as a, as a cookie monster myself, I would greatly appreciate that because I'm going to eat every single one of them along the way. Well, you better take that breath then. <laughs> I most certainly will. Yeah. Um, you know? As, as, we're, um, as we're kind of wrapping up our time here a little bit, um, I want to be mindful of your time as well. But um, looking forward, who are some of the groups or some of the folks uh, who are out there right now that are inspiring you? Um, or who you think, like, wow, you folks out there, you should know about these folks and, and what they're doing. Okay, so Amir Ramya, who I've uh, worked with on, like, five different pieces by now, um, and another trans poet named Lady Dane Figueroa Edidi. And, yeah, like, it's a Black trans indigenous voice who is very uh, honest about certain things that a lot of people don't, are not comfortable being honest about. And um, that's kind of from, from all these adjectives is that these people that live at the intersections of marginalized identities are like so sensitive. And I don't mean that in the sense that they're oversensitive, but they're just appropriately sensitive and that their capacity for empathy surpasses people that aren't forced to deal with those realities um, on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, the trans community is a large inspiration to me just time and time again. Um, So all kinds of trans artists. Um, Angelica Ross, I don't know how common that name is. If, If anybody's seen Pose on FX, it's like a groundbreaking show. You have oh, to yeah, go yeah, see yeah. it. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. You of have course. to go see it. Um, but it's like probably the first of its kind where it's like a bunch of trans characters being played by trans people, not cis people. And um, it's about the ball- ballroom scene in the 1980s in, in New York City. It's epic. It's such a groundbreaking thing, but... You know, it gives me so much pride and inspiration and community doing all these things. So that's, that's a big inspiration to me. And that's really the first thing that comes to my head. Um, you know, I mean, uh, there's, there's so many, but that, that's mostly who I think about. And I'm very lucky to, to work with some of them on some music. Actually, I don't know if I sent you um, Wondrous Glow, but if I did, that one's also an Amir Rabia piece. 
that is a cappella, so you could do that one if you want. Uh, yes. And it does have a solo that is either alto or bass. I know that's what inspired that question, was that score. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Amir, their poetry is just stunning. Really stunning. Mari, in our last few closing closing minutes, um, for folks, it's it's been it's been a heck of a year, past year. We're still not quite out of it yet, um, as far as chronologically the start of COVID and all those things, and it's the insanity of uh, th- this last year. I mean, on so many levels, BLM and social justice movements and everything that's been happening. What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to comfortable people, like stopping being comfortable. Like, honestly, (laughs) that's really how I see um, a lot of a lot of movements and uh, efforts and and organization and solidarity towards progress is gatekept. And honestly, there's just some very powerful people with lots of money behind them. And they are gatekeeping. (laughs) <laughs> all the movements that uh, are fighting for our freedom as Americans. And that's, that's basically the long and the short of it. I, I think that we as a nation will continue to suffer um, climac- climactic climate tragedies, tragedies of the climate. Um, and uh you know, school shootings. We're going to continue to suffer pandemic until we've had the gall to deal with things in a really serious way. And that's what the movements are fighting for. So more discomfort. We need more uncomfortable people in positions of power. For now. Well, it's not a discomfort. I guess so. It's just, it's just more that we need people to be more radically honest with themselves. Mm. And more curious about things that, you know, just people dismissing like, oh, well, that doesn't affect me. So mm. it's not my problem. And that type of attitude is going to ensure more disasters. I could because not agree more. Completely, going back to iFlow, I am, is that it, it really just dismisses our connection and what we can accomplish together. Agreed. Yeah, I could, agreed. I could not agree more. I, I feel like... The, everything that we need right now is to connect humanity globally and and find find the common ground. And ain't that why we sing? Yeah. And not be shy about talking not. about difficult things to talk about. Exactly. Or sing about. Or sing about them. <laughs> exactly. Well, this has been... Giacomo, you have anything further? I don't. This has been tremendous, Mari. I can't tell you how excited and how how um how much i've been looking forward to this conversation thank you so much yeah i you know mari we've i've known you for what i don't know 11 years probably 12 years or so and we've had a chance to to forge this relationship between composer and conductor and singer and conductor and yet when it comes down to it it's a very personal relationship that i feel like i have with you and i feel grateful to have spent so many years getting to know you as a composer, but also getting to know you as a person. Um, and so I, I thank you for taking the time to talk to us today and to, for opening up and, and sharing a little bit about yourself as a composer, but also as a person. 
Thank you. That means a lot. All right. Well, you have a wonderful evening, Mari. Thanks again for joining us. And we will talk to you soon. Have a good night, y'all. You do the same. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. If you've got ideas for our podcast, please send us a message at ideas at inunisonpodcast.com. And who knows, maybe Chorus Dolores will ask us to talk about it during announcements. <laughs> In Unison is sustained, nourished, and fostered by you, our loyal and loving listeners. And don't forget to subscribe to In Unison on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at InUnisonPod. And hey, if you like what you heard, tell a friend or a section mate. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon. Glockenspiel and Torpedo Guero acquired and tuned by Chorus Dolores, who would like to remind you these are instruments, not toys, people. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.